Right, you guys can turn to James chapter 2. James 2, 14 to 26 is what we're looking at today. Now, I will not sugarcoat things for you. This is a tough passage. <laughs> Very tough passage. Hardest one in the book. One of the hardest ones you'll find anywhere in Scripture. In fact, um, over the years that I've been a pastor, I've been a pastor for about nine years now, um, I've been asked a lot of questions over those nine years, but I've noticed certain patterns. There are certain questions that come up over and over again from people, and top of the list is this passage. What in the world do we do with James 2, 14, 26? Um, so this morning, I'm going to walk you through it. A lot of deep theology, a lot of intensive Bible study that we're going to do this morning. I'll warn you, it'll probably feel like you're drinking from a fire hose. I have a lot of ground I have to cover this morning. So um, we're going to do a couple things a little differently today. After service, we're going to have a Q&A back in this room. So at 12.30, you're welcome to come back in here. We'll have bottles of water and granola bars so you can carb up. And then I'm just going to open it and you can ask any question that you want about James, Hebrews, 1 John, Matthew, anything, any theology, any Bible. Try to help you guys wrap your minds around what's going on in James 2. Now you can submit questions during that time on note cards or you can go ahead and submit questions early. Just shoot me a message on my Twitter profile. I'll have the feed up here and I can answer people's questions at Grace Bible Blake. You're welcome to send your questions questions early if you'd like um, so that they're ready for us when the Q&A starts. Uh, so we'll have the Q&A after the service and then later this week uh, I would encourage you to go back hop on our website and download my notes download the, the sermon audio or my PowerPoint and go back through it. If, if you're anything like me it's going to take you a few times going through this material to really understand it to wrap your minds around it because there's so much here. So my sermon will be up tonight with the audio with the notes the PowerPoint um, later this this week, I will send out via Twitter and Facebook a summary of the position I'm going to walk you through this morning. So an article that just details how we at Grace understand James 2. So if you'd like that, you can just follow me at Twitter and I'll send you that article so that you can go through this a few times so it can really sink in deeply. Okay, so what do we do with James 2? What do we do with James 2, 14 to 26? Look with me. Let's, let's strap on and jump into verse 14. Here we go. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? The problem is right there at the beginning for us. James puts out a very simple question. Can faith without works save you? To which he offers a very simple answer. It's implied in English, but it's actually explicit in Greek. The answer is no. No. It cannot save you. Faith without works cannot save you. Absolutely not. Now, now that conclusion should make you feel a little bit uncomfortable right now. So what did we just spend the last 20 minutes worshiping? Worship God for the freeness of his grace. That eternal life comes as a gift by faith alone, by grace alone, because of the work of Jesus on the cross. But James seems to be saying something completely different. James 2 should make us feel uncomfortable because it seems to contradict the core message of the New Testament, that eternal life is by grace alone, that it is a gift that you receive by faith alone. You see that in passage after passage after passage, particularly in Paul. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul's saying your works don't play any role in getting you saved, in getting you eternal life. If they did, you'd have a reason to boast before God. Or to make it even more clear, Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work, he does no good works but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You have righteousness, you have forgiveness, you have eternal life by faith alone without any works. Man, it, it seems like Paul and James are in complete contradiction to one another. They seem to be saying exactly the opposite. That gets even tougher when you look a little later in James 2 at verse 24. James says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Then you open up Paul to Romans 3, verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Boy, it could not be more contradictory to, than that, could it? 
They seem to be completely contradicting one another. I don't know if you know, but actually, these two verses are often listed by atheists as proof that our religion is ridiculous. Man, if the authors of scripture couldn't even get on the same page, how can you trust any of the Bible as the word of God? So this is pretty important stuff to study. We have to be able to reconcile Paul and James so that they are both speaking truth or the foundation of our faith is destroyed. You gotta figure out how to reconcile Paul and James. And in the history of the church, there are three common answers that have been given for how to rectify, for how to reconcile Paul and James. Three most common answers. The first is the Roman Catholic answer. How do Roman Catholics understand James 2? Now, this is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Not all Roman Catholics agree with this, but this is their official doctrine ever since the Council of Trent. Roman Catholicism reconciles Paul and James by saying each of them were speaking about half of salvation. Paul was talking about the half that is faith. You have to believe. James was talking about the half that is good works. You must do good works. And if you end your life with both, with faith and good works, then God justifies you and you get into heaven. Otherwise, you end up in purgatory or somewhere worse. That's the official Roman Catholic position. Works are required to gain or earn eternal life. That's what they believe James is talking about. James 2, how you earn eternal life through good deeds. So that's the Roman Catholic position. Second position is the Arminian position. Arminians are are a branch of the Protestant church that includes, for example, Methodists. So our Methodist brothers and sisters, the teaching of the Methodist church, like good Protestants, they believe that eternal life really comes by faith alone. It's by faith alone, but they believe that eternal life can be lost. You can forfeit uh, your eternal life if you do not do good works. God will take it back from you or you will end up in hell. And so Arminians view James and James 2 as telling you how to keep your eternal life. You got it through faith alone, but now you need to do good works or you will lose it. So works are required to keep eternal life. The other branch of the Protestant church is who? The Calvinists. Our Reformed brothers and sisters in the Presbyterian Church, Lutherans, most Baptists, most independent churches, very popular position these days. The Reformed or Calvinist position agrees with the Arminians that salvation, eternal life, really is by faith alone. It's a free gift that you receive by faith alone. But like Arminians, they believe that if you end your life without good works, you will not go to heaven. You will not have eternal life. But in contrast to Arminians, they disagree about the permanence of eternal life. Calvinists, like us, believe that you cannot lose eternal life. Once saved, always saved. And so, if you can't lose your eternal life, then what's going on in James 2? Well, they conclude what James must be doing is telling us that good works are required to prove our eternal life. If we don't have good works, then we prove we were never saved to begin with. That's the reform position on James. You were just fooling yourself. You were lying to yourself, deceiving yourself. You were kidding when you said you were a Christian because the lack of good works in your life proves you were never saved to begin with. And the way they walk it through is is God desires all believers to do good works. And in Calvinism, God always gets whatever God wants. And so you will do good works, period. If you're a believer, you'll do good works. If you don't do good works, it is proof that you were never saved to begin with, that you never had eternal life. And so the the reform cliche, the faith, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. It must have works to prove that you have eternal life. Those are the three most common answers to how we reconcile Paul and James, and I disagree with all three. That's my basic position. I think all three are mistaken. It's a lot that I like about individual ones, particularly the last one, but I think all three miss this point. They miss James too. They fail to accurately understand what James was talking about in the context of the book of James. They misinterpret James. That's what forces them to this position. And as a result of misunderstanding James, all three views end up clouding the gospel of grace. That's really the biggest issue here this morning. They cloud, they confuse the gospel of grace. When C.S. Lewis was asked, what is it that sets Christianity apart from every other religion out there? What was his answer? One word, grace. 
that you get good things you don't deserve. That is the one thing that separates Christianity from everything else. He's correct. That is the core of biblical Christianity is grace. That we get good. We get eternal life, not because we deserve it, but as a free gift. That's the good news of the gospel. That even though we deserve wrath from God, we deserve his punishment. He gave us his son to die for us and rise from the dead so that he could extend to us eternal life as a free gift, a gift of grace to all who will simply receive it in faith, to all who will believe that Jesus died for them and rose from the dead, they have eternal life. That is the gospel of grace, but that gospel gets clouded in all three of these views. For Roman Catholicism, it gets clouded on the front end by adding works to grace and a cooperation to give you eternal life. And Arminianism and Calvinism, it also gets clouded, though. It also gets confused because even though both systems preach salvation by grace alone, they add works in the back door. They open the back door and add works in to either keep or prove that you were saved. And in doing that, they confuse the gospel. They muddy the waters. Let me give you a couple examples. I want to share with you some quotes from two of the most popular reformed writers of our day, very popular guys, John Piper and Francis Chan. Now, let me start by telling you, I highly respect both men, highly respect them. My brothers in Christ, incredible teachers. I've learned a ton from both, especially John Piper. His books were instrumental in me growing in maturity in my faith. So I love and respect both men, but I hope you understand godly people can disagree. And on this point, we disagree. I disagree with their interpretation of James 2, and I disagree with how it confuses the gospel in their books. Let me give you some examples. Because of their interpretation of James 2 and passages like it, look at how they present the gospel. Here's Piper. We're going to start with with a quote from Piper that I totally agree with. Justification is by grace alone, not mixed with our merit, through faith alone, not mixed with our works, on the basis of Christ alone, not mingling his righteousness with ours, to the glory of God alone, not ours. Yes, that is the gospel of grace, that is completely based on what Jesus did for you, not based on any works that you do. That's it. But then, his very famous book, Desiring God, chapter 2, he says... These are just some of the conditions that the New Testament says we must meet in order to inherit final salvation. We must believe on Jesus and receive him and turn from our sin and obey him and humble ourselves like little children and love him more than we love our family, our possessions, or our own life. This is what it means to be converted to Christ. This alone is the way of everlasting life. Wait a minute, John, which is it? Am I saved by grace alone based on what Jesus did? Or do I get eternal life by believing and relying and humbling and loving and obeying and doing all of these things? Loving my my Savior more than I love my own wife and kids? Man, that's incredibly hard. That's an incredibly high bar to pass if that's what it takes to get eternal life. He has confused the gospel of grace by adding works in the back door. Francis Chan does the same thing. In his book, Erasing Hell, I'll start with a quote I completely agree with. In describing the gospel, Chan says, put your faith in him, that is Jesus. Accept the incredible gift of the cross where Jesus took upon himself the punishment we deserve and gives to us the life, healing, and redemption that come only through grace. And that's it. There's the gospel of grace right there. You get redemption, eternal life, as a gift by grace, irrespective of your works. Nailed it. That's it. That's the gospel of grace. But then, in the same book, he says, put simply, failing to help the poor could damn you to hell. Or in his popular book, Crazy Love, as I see it, a lukewarm Christian is an oxymoron. There is no such thing. To put it plainly, churchgoers who are lukewarm are not Christians. We will not see them in heaven. Okay, so after just telling us that eternal life is based on what Jesus did, now you're telling us that that I have to passionately pursue Jesus Christ, completely obeying him and taking care of the poor, sacrificing of my possessions to help the needy, or I end up in hell. That is the inescapable conclusion of all three of those first views that I presented to you, that James is slipping works in the back door. That at the end of the day, faith alone really isn't enough to get you eternal life. You must have works. Good works either to earn, keep, or prove your salvation. And if you don't, you end up in hell. In my opinion, 
the grace of the gospel has been lost in those views. We've lost sight of it. We've confused it in all three of those views. Fortunately, we're not limited to those three views. There is a fourth view. Some people call it the free grace view. It's the position of this church. And that's what I'd like to show you guys today. It's a better view for two reasons. First and most important, because I think it does much better justice to James. It's much more accurate to what James is doing in chapter two and in the book as a whole. I'm gonna walk you through in detail so you can see what James is actually talking about. So this fourth view, it does better justice to James too. And then second, very significantly, it avoids confusing the gospel of grace. It keeps grace as grace. It doesn't add works into the back door of the equation of eternal life. So I want to walk you through this fourth view. The basic idea of this fourth view is that all three of the first views made the same mistake right at the beginning. Same mistake right from the start. They failed to accurately define their words. It's a basic misunderstanding of Roman Catholics, Arminians, and Calvinists. They failed to define their words in James 2. Let me ask you, what does the word crack mean? What do you think? Well, it depends on where we are. If we're walking down the sidewalk probably means a fracture in the cement. If we're walking through the ninth ward of Houston, probably means an illegal narcotic that'll kill you. Uh, If we're at Bluebell Field, probably means the sound you get when somebody hits a home run ball. If you're calling a plumber, it's probably referring to something you really don't want to see. (laughs) Same word used in a variety of different ways because that's how words work. They don't carry one technical meaning that you assume. They carry a range of meanings. And so when you walk into a passage and begin to study a passage, you have to study each word in the context. What is the range of meanings for that word? Each of the first three views failed to understand the range of meanings of certain words in the passage, primarily that, that first important word in verse 14, save. Verse 14, save. What did all three views assume that James meant by the word save? Get out of hell. They assume that James means deliverance from the penalty of your sins, which is hell. Getting to heaven. That's what they assume verse 14 is about. But when you study sozo, the Greek word for save in the New Testament, you find actually it is not a technical term for getting to heaven. It is actually a word that has a range of meaning. It's a word with a very simple meaning, simply to deliver or to rescue someone. That's all sozo means, to deliver or to rescue. So anytime in your Bible when you see save or salvation, you must ask yourself, who's being saved from what? What is this deliverance from? You have to study the context to figure that out. Now, as you study through scripture, you will see sometimes save does mean rescue from hell. Deliver someone from the penalty of sin, that is hell. It does sometimes mean that, but in other passages, it means to deliver someone from the power of sin. That is, rescue a believer from temptation so they don't give in to sin. In other passages, it means to rescue someone from the presence of sin in their life. That's glorification. When God removes the last traces of sin and we are perfected. In other passages, it means to be saved or delivered from loss or shame at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll talk about that more later this morning. In other passages, it means something much more physical, much more immediate. It means rescue from prison, get out of jail card. In other passages, it means to be rescued from enemies. That one's actually very common throughout scripture. In other passages, it means to be rescued from sickness, which we would just say to get better, to be healed. And in other passages, it means to be delivered from physical death, from actually dying on the spot prematurely. Those last two meanings are actually used by James in James chapter five. You may remember, we've looked at those verses a couple times. James five fifteen: the prayer offered in faith will restore, sozo in Greek, literally will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Notice save is not a technical term for getting to heaven. This has nothing to do with heaven. It talks about getting better so you don't stay sick. Similarly, verse 20. He who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul, his life from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James is just getting Old Testament on us in verse 20. It's a common message in the Old Testament. If you give in to sin, it will put you in an early grave. You will die physically, literally early if you give in to sin. So if you don't want to die real soon, don't sin. That's all James is doing with that. You study this word save and you realize there is a range of meanings. And so in any particular passage, if I want to know what the word means in this passage, I have to study the context. And that's what I want to do now. 
What is the meaning in verse 14 of save based on the context? There's two clues that James gives us, two things that he tells us that helps us understand what is going on by that word in this book, in, verse, in chapter two, verse 14. First of all, he talks to us about the audience. That's the first contextual clue. Look to see what James says about the people to whom he is writing. Look with me at the beginning of the book, chapter one. Let's see what we can tell about this audience. Starting in verse two, he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Notice he calls them brethren. He'll call them beloved brethren three times in the book. That was just a shorthand way of talking to believers in the early church. And he talks to them as those who have faith. Their faith is being tested, but they have faith. It's there. He's talking to them as though they are believers. Look at chapter two, verse one, even clearer here. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He assumes they already have placed their faith in Jesus. He's writing to believers. Now, actually, the most interesting thing is that you read the whole book of James from chapter one to chapter five, and guess what's missing in James? What you will never see in James, the gospel. Anything about the gospel, about Jesus dying for your sins, rising from the dead so you can have eternal life through faith. James says nothing about that, but think about it. If James was concerned that his audience's lack of good works was either causing them to lose their salvation or prove that they never had it, what is the one piece of information they need above all else? The gospel. That's the only thing that can give them eternal life. That's the biggest problem with the reformed and Arminian positions. He doesn't give them the one piece of information they need above all else if they have lost or proved they never had salvation. Nothing about the gospel in James because he is speaking to genuine believers. That's who James is writing to. Regardless of who hears it, that's whom he's writing to, genuine believers. That's the first important piece of context. Second important clue that James gives us in context is the previous verses. Look with me, chapter 2, starting in verse 12. James says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is incredibly helpful. Remember that in the original Greek, there were no verse divisions. There were no paragraph divisions. These verses came right before verse 14. So check your theology at the door for a moment. If this audience is listening to verse 14 and James says that faith without works cannot save you, what's the natural definition of save that's going to come to their mind? You cannot not save us from what you just warned us about in verse 13, merciless judgment. That's the immediate context. Faith without works will not save us from merciless judgment. That's what James means by save in this passage. Now that raises the question, what is this judgment? What is this merciless judgment? All three of the other views, Roman Catholicism, Arminianism, and the reform position, assume that this judgment is about getting to heaven. It's about escaping hell and getting to heaven. That's what Chan and Piper would say about this, but I don't think so. I don't think this judgment is about whether you get to heaven or hell, and I have three reasons for that. First of all, if it was, then Paul and James really would be completely in contradiction to one another. If escaping hell and getting to heaven is really based on your obedience to the law of liberty, to your, to your doing good deeds, then you cannot reconcile Paul and James because Paul tells us that is not at all what getting to heaven and escaping hell is about. You cannot reconcile them if this is about heaven or hell. Second reason that I don't think this is about heaven or hell, look at chapter three. Look with me at verse one. James says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. We studied that last week. Teachers here, it means those who teach the word. So it's, it's pastors, it's elders, it's Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, teachers in Christian private schools. It's people who teach the word. James is saying, if you teach the word, you need to be warned. You, you need to be a little fearful because you're going to be held to a stricter standard of judgment. Interesting, same context before and after our passage, judgment. If this judgment was about getting to heaven and escaping hell, then as I told you last week, I would resign right this instance. 
I would resign right now. What fool would choose a career that made it harder for him to get to heaven? That's ridiculous. No one would do that. That's my biggest question for John Piper and Francis Chan. If you guys believe that this is about heaven or hell, why are you pastors? That's crazy. You're choosing to be held to a harder standard that you believe is about getting into heaven. So that's the second reason I don't think this is about heaven or hell. The third reason I don't think it's about heaven or hell is because there is a better option. And what Roman Catholics and Arminians and Calvinists, I don't think, understand from Scripture, what they miss in the New Testament is that there are actually two judgments coming in our future. Not one day of judgment, but two days of judgment. Now, I warned you, this is going to be like a fire hose. I've got to lay out a lot of theology for you guys this morning so you can see how this is fitting in. The New Testament tells us that in the future, there are two judgments coming. The first is called the Great White Throne Judgment. And John talks about it in the book of Revelation. He says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Here's what I think is going on. John is telling us in the future, the first judgment is this great white throne judgment. All of humanity will be brought before God the Father and books will be opened. And the most important book there is the book of life. The book of life is the record of everyone who has trusted in Jesus for eternal life. Everyone who has Jesus's blood counted to them. If your name is in the book of life, then you pass. You're going to heaven. If your name is not in the book of life, then God says, okay, well, you didn't trust in Jesus to give you eternal life. You trusted in yourself. So let's look at how you did. And another set of books is opened, the book of deeds. And it says everything that you did. And if you are judged by the book of deeds, what is the guaranteed outcome? The lake of fire. Because none of us can earn our way to heaven. None of us can meet the standard of God's righteousness. If you are judged by the book of deeds, you end up in the lake of fire. So that is the judgment about heaven or hell. We escape that. Why? Because we're in the book of life. Because we have trusted in Jesus. His blood is placed in our account. His righteousness is placed upon us. That's the first judgment, but it's not the judgment that James is talking about. He's talking about the second judgment, the judgment seat of Christ or Bema seat of Christ. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we believers must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed, paid back or rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is not about faith. This is not about whether your name was in the book of life. This is about what you did. You stand before Jesus having already escaped hell and Jesus evaluates your deeds to decide whether you get reward or not. Paul gives us even more detail, really important passage, 1 Corinthians 3. He says, now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. This is judgment language. This fire is judgment. Jesus judges our life based on our deeds. Did we do good deeds in building up the kingdom, the church of God on earth, or did we not? Did we just waste our lives for ourselves? How does the judgment work out? Well, if any man's work, which he has built on it, remains. So you did good works that count for eternity. What is the result? You will receive a reward. Not you get to go to heaven, but you get rewarded by your savior. In contrast, if any man's work is burned up, so his good works did not count. He did nothing. He did no good works in this life. Everything that he lived for had no eternal value. What is the result? He will suffer loss. He will not receive reward, but he himself will be saved. Yet is through fire. It could not be clearer. This is not the great white throne judgment. If you fail this judgment, you do not go to hell. You are saved. This is saved in the sense of go to heaven, be rescued from the penalty of your sins. But you're saved like someone out of a burning building. When someone's rescued out of a burning building, what does it look like? What do they have with them? Nothing. 
Maybe the clothes on their back, but they're sin. They don't have anything with them. So is the believer who stands before Jesus who has not done good works. You have nothing to offer your savior. Instead of hearing well done, good and faithful servant, you just stand there and feel ashamed that you wasted this life that he gave you. This is the judgment that James is talking about. Not the great white throne, but the judgment seat of Christ. So James wants us to understand why do we need to follow faith with good works? Because only by following faith with works can we be delivered from shame and loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 14 is not at all about heaven or hell. It's about how you do when Jesus evaluates you. Are you going to receive reward from him and hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Or are you going to feel ashamed because you've wasted your life? Only way to be delivered from a merciless judgment standing before Jesus is to do good works. Now that we've wrestled that word saved to the ground and have a sense of what's going on in verse 14, let me begin to put this whole passage together for you. The basic idea of James 2, 14 to 26, which actually everyone would agree on, Big idea, we're all in agreement. James is giving us a command. Follow your faith with works. Real clear on that. That's the big idea. James is commanding us to follow our faith with works. We all agree about that. It's what follows that we disagree. We believe, this fourth view believes that James follows this command, follow your faith with works. He backs it up with two reasons. That first reason why we need to follow our faith with works is so that we will be saved from loss at the judgment seat of Christ. That's verse 14. The second reason is verses 15 through 20. So look with me, starting in verse 15. James says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give him what is necessary for their body, what use is that? What James is saying, why follow faith with good works? Reason number two, because it saves you from a useless life. And then he, he illustrates it there in the two verses we read. Imagine that, that a brother or sister in Christ, so a fellow believer comes to you and they have lost their job and they have depleted their savings and they're about to get kicked out of their house and they don't have money to buy food for their kids and you put your hand around them and say, bro, I'm praying for you. Be warm, be happy, put a smile on your face. Count it joy, now have a nice day. What use is that? It's useless. You are a useless member of the body of Jesus Christ if that's what you do. That's James' point. It's not about getting to heaven or hell. It's about being useful on this planet, being useful to one another. That's what James drives home in the next verse. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Now, this verse is often misunderstood. Faith without works is dead. What do the reformers mean by that? The reformed guys. They mean, really, faith without works is non-existent. Faith without works is an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. You don't have faith if you don't have works. That's the reformed position. But biblically speaking, that's not what dead means. Nowhere does dead mean non-existent. Dead means lifeless, inactive, it's powerless. And that's what James is picturing. You're standing here and there's a dead body next to you. It exists. No one is questioning that it exists, but it's lifeless. It's not doing anybody any good. It's a rotting, stinking corpse sitting there. That's what faith looks like without works. A rotting, stinking corpse sitting there doing no one any good just stinking it up. That's faith without works. It's useless. And James drives that point home in verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? That's the big idea, the key word of this section. Faith without works is useless. If you believe in Jesus and yet you are not doing good works, you need to understand right now you are a useless person. You are not advancing God's kingdom. You are not drawing people to faith. You are not helping people with needs. You are just taking up space on this planet. Without good works, you're living a useless life. That's the second reason James gives us why we need to follow our faith with good works to rescue us from a useless life. Now you'll notice I skipped verses 18 and 19. We're gonna come back to those. They're the two hardest verses in the New Testament to interpret in my opinion. So we'll come back to those. We're going to keep moving through the passage, through these clear verses, so we really understand what James is doing. He follows his two reasons for why we need good works with two examples, two illustrations of people from the Old Testament who followed faith with good works. First example is Abraham. 
Look with me starting in verse 21. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, verse 24 is the one that gives us a tizzy when we compare it to Paul. Seems like they're directly contradicting one another. Well, they're only contradicting one another if they mean the same thing by the word justified. Yet again, the error people are making is they are not accurately defining their words. Just like saved, justified doesn't have some technical meaning that gets to heaven. Justify is a simple word used often in their time period for many things. And the basic idea of the word is to declare someone to be in the right. That's all that justified means. You declare that somebody is right. Somebody is in a position of rightness. They are righteous in your sight. Now in scripture, it's used a number of different ways. In some passages, it's used actually in a negative way of Pharisees declaring themselves to be in the right. Pharisees justifying themselves. Clearly, that's not about getting to heaven because it's negative in that passage. In other passages, it's used of people declaring God to be in the right. So they're saying, God, you are right. You are righteous. That's a common use of justify. Uh, Third use of God declaring a person to be in the right. That's how Paul uses the word. When we were looking at Romans 3 and 4, that's what Paul means by justify. At a moment in time, you place your faith in Jesus. You believe that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, giving you eternal life. Upon that faith, upon placing your faith in Jesus, God declares you to forever be in the right. You are forgiven. You are acquitted. God declares you to be righteous in his sight. That's what secures eternal life for you. And Paul wants us to understand that justification comes by faith alone. Our works play absolutely no role in that. That is by grace alone that God declares you to be in the right. And then interestingly, Paul, just like James, will point to Abraham. He'll point to Abraham as an example, but he'll point to an earlier event in Abraham's life. In Genesis 15, when Abraham was 80 years old, God made an incredible promise to an old man who had no children. He said, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of the sky. And the text tells us that Abraham believed. He believed that God would keep his word. And what did God do? God counted it as righteousness. God counted his faith as righteousness. That is justification by God for Abraham. The moment Abraham believed, God declared him to be righteous forever. That's what Paul means by justify, but not what James means. See, in our passage, James looks at an event that happened a lot later in Abraham's life. James looks at Genesis 22, when Abraham was 100 years old. Abraham did not exercise faith in Genesis 22. He exercised obedience, incredible obedience. If you don't know the story, Abraham finally has this son he has waited a lifetime for, and then God tells him, go kill the boy. Abraham obeys. He goes and sacrifices his son. God stops him at the last possible moment. And what is the result of that incredible obedience? Not that God justified Abraham. That was sealed up 20 years earlier. What's the result of that incredible obedience? The rest of the world figured out, yep, This guy's righteous. It's actually what James tells us. Little portion you may have missed there at the end of verse 23. Here's what James means by justify. As a result of his obedience into the verse, he was called the friend of God. Who is calling Abraham friend of God? It's not God saying, hey, buddy, that's not what's going on here. It's other people. It's his family, it's his nation, it's the rest of the world, it's us 4,000 years later. How do we know Abraham to be a friend of God? Not because of his faith, you can't see his faith. It's because of his obedience. Only obedience can we see. And so it's obedience that proves to us that Abraham was indeed in the right. That's what James means by justification. Not God declaring us to be in the right, but the world declaring us to be in the right. 
The world will not know that you are righteous by your faith because they can't see it. They can't see your belief in Jesus. All they can see is your works. And so until you follow faith with good works, the world will not justify you. They will not call you righteous until you prove it by good works. So Paul and James are not in contradiction to one another. They're talking about different things. Paul's talking about how we receive that declaration of righteousness from God by faith alone, by grace alone. James is talking about how we get justified by the world, declared righteous by the world. That takes good works because they can't see our faith. Got to follow your faith with good works if you want to be justified in the sight of the world. Abraham did. Abraham followed faith with incredible obedience. And as a result, he was the opposite of a useless man. He was incredibly useful to God. He became a model of righteousness to his descendants and to the entire world, so much so that you are studying him 4,000 years later on the other side of the planet. Incredibly useful guy, not because of faith, but because of good works. So first example that James gives us of a person who follows faith with works, Abraham, second Rahab. Look with me at verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now here's the story just in short because of lack of time. Rahab was a, a harlot who lived in the city of Jericho a nation, a, a people who, who worshiped idols. And the Israelites came out of the wilderness and the first city which God gave them to conquer was Jericho. Now, to figure out this city, to figure out what they were facing, the Israelites sent spies into the city. And the spies began to check it out. And at some point, the king of Jericho realized there are Israelite spies here and he began to hunt them. And so they looked for someone to protect them. Rahab protected them and then they slipped out the back way when the guards weren't looking. They went back to the Israelites. The Israelites came and attack Jericho, march around it, walls fall down, you know the story, and then they put everybody to death, with one exception, Rahab and her family. So what does James want us to understand here? Well, it's interesting, when you read the account in the book of Joshua, you'll notice that when the spies come and talk to Rahab, this, this prostitute, the first thing she tells them is, I know that Yahweh, the Lord your God, has given you this land. Guess what? That's the same faith that Abraham exercised in Genesis 15. The girl's a believer. I think she's going to heaven based on that faith right there. She believed just like Abraham did that God exists and keeps his promises. Great, so now she's been justified by God. She has eternal life. But the question is, is she gonna be alive or dead when the Israelites come in the city? What does she need to do? She's got to follow faith with good works. Again, an incredibly good work. She risks her own life to hide the spies. They go back and tell the Israelites, hey, guess what? Jericho is full of wicked people with one exception, a lady named Rahab. They noticed that she was righteous. In other words, they justified her. The spies declared Rahab to be righteous in the sight of the Israelites. And so the result, they don't kill her. If Rahab would not have done this good work, if she would have, out of fear, just turned the spies over to the king, well, what would the result have been? I think Rahab would have gone to heaven a lot quicker. She would have been put to death with the rest of Jericho. She's a believer. She goes to heaven, but her family would not have been spared. Good works were required for her to be justified by the Israelites so they could know she's righteous. If she didn't do a good work, then yeah, she has faith, but they can't see the faith, and so they're going to put her to death. Good works brought justification in the sight of people that preserved her life. And it's interesting what happens later. She marries an Israelite guy. They have a son named Boaz who actually is a forefather of Jesus. This harlot who is an idolater becomes part of the lineage of Jesus Christ, your savior, not because of faith, but because of works. She did good works and that's what made her life useful. So James has, has given us the reasons for following faith with good works, and then he has proved it with two examples, and finally he draws the conclusion there at the end, verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Again, dead doesn't mean non-existent. Faith is here. James is comparing faith to a human body and works to the human spirit. Just like your spirit gives vitality to your body, it makes you active so that you can help people and do good work on this earth. So works gives vitality to your faith. Faith without works is a stinking corpse on the ground. It's there, it's real, it's not imaginary, but it's not doing anyone any good. That's the point that James has for us 
in this passage. Now, we've skipped verses 18 and 19, and I've been trying to run as fast as I can, but have used up my time, um, not surprisingly. Let me just uh, save that section for the Q&A, which will start shortly. Let me just do this, though. The reason that I skipped verses 18 and 19, what am I doing there? Well, um, I'm not alone in thinking verses 18 and 19 are the hardest two verses in the entire New Testament to interpret. Hardest verses in in the whole New Testament to interpret. Um, And the reason is uh, this. This is what the uh, Greek manuscript looked like that James wrote. Notice all capital Greek letters with no spaces and no punctuation. Quote marks are not inspired. And so we do not know for sure where does James begin and the objector begin. Where does the objector end? What words belong to this foolish objector and what words belong to James? It's hard to know. We all know where it begins. Um, Verse 18, right after, but someone may well say, you. Okay, that's where the objector begins, but where does he end? We don't know. That's why if you have multiple translations, you'll see the NIV ends it in a different place than NASB does. I actually think the objector goes all the way through verse 18 and 19. The reason I hold that is if you check your theology at the door and just look at the grammar of the passage, if it begins, but someone may well say, where would you expect it to end? Beginning of verse 20, but are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow? With a contrast, James disagrees with this guy. He's a fool. And so you would expect James to come back with a slap, but... So I think it goes through the end of verse 19. Um, If you stay for the Q&A, I will walk you through all of that and try to show you what I think is going on there. Here is the most important point, though, when looking at verses 18 and 19. They're the hardest verses in the New Testament to interpret, so please do not base your understanding of salvation on those two verses. That'd be a foolish thing to do. I've heard so many people quote verse 19 as proof of the Reformed position. But verse 19 is is probably a fool speaking. It is probably an objector. We don't know for sure. I could be wrong, but it very likely is the objector speaking. So don't base your whole interpretation of salvation on that verse. Realize that that is a pretty absurd argument going on in verse 19. Salvation was never offered to demons. You cannot compare your spiritual state to a demon's spiritual state. It's a ridiculous, absurd argument. So don't base your interpretation on verses 18 and 19. Base it on the rest of the passage. I hope you see that so much of James 2 comes down to good Bible study methods. Good Bible study methods. You define your words accurately. You study the context. And you let the clear verses interpret the hard verses. That's how you get to the meaning of James 2. So guys in the back, if you will jump to the summary at the end. Again, I'll cover all of that in the Q&A if you're back here in a little bit. Jump to slide 42. All right, so let's draw this together. Are Paul and James in contradiction to one another? No. Paul and James are talking about two different things. Paul is talking about the fact that faith alone will save you from hell and justify you in the sight of God. Faith and faith alone, grace alone. You don't need any works. Works are not involved in eternal life at all. Works are not involved in saving you from hell or getting you justified by God at all. That's Paul's point, particularly in the book of Romans. James is talking about something different. James' point is that for believers, for those who already have eternal life, faith followed by works saves us from loss at the judgment seat of Christ and saves us from a useless life. That's the point of James too. James doesn't want you to live a useless life. He doesn't want you to feel ashamed when you get to heaven and stand before your savior and have nothing to offer him. He wants to rescue you from that. So he challenges you, follow your faith that has given you eternal life, follow it with good works so that you will live a useful life that will receive honor and reward from Jesus. Now finally, let me end with an application. This understanding of James 2 tells us two things. It it compels us in two directions. First, it compels us towards confidence. God wants us to be sure of our eternal life. In my opinion, all three of those first views, the Catholic view, the Arminian view, and the Reformed view, all of them undermine assurance. Because how can you really know if you've done enough good works to either earn or keep or prove your eternal life? 
John Bunyan, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was a Puritan pastor who was afraid of going to hell for his entire life. He was afraid all the way up to his deathbed. Why? Because as a Puritan, he was a good Reformed theologian who had concluded your good works prove that you're saved, but wait, how much good works do I have to have? If we're honest with ourselves, we will all acknowledge I've not done as many good works as I could. I've not gotten to perfection. So where's the bar? Where's the line in the sand? He didn't know. And so we lived in fear, but God doesn't want you to live in fear. He tells us in 1 John 5, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's only possible with view four. With the view that says James is not talking about eternal life. Eternal life is yours by faith alone. You believe in Jesus and you're spending eternity in heaven. You can be absolutely secure in that. You can be absolutely assured in your eternal life because it's by faith alone. Works plays no role before or after. So James 2 compels us to have confidence in the security of our salvation, but at the same time, in the opposite direction, it convicts us. James 2 should convict us. It should tell us that those of us who have eternal life by faith alone need to get busy doing good works because it is only through good works that we can deliver ourselves from loss when we stand before Jesus Christ and deliver ourselves from a useless life that does no good to anyone. James 2 should compel us to do good works like crazy. So I want to end with one good work. One good work you can do this week and in the coming weeks, uh, it's October. And so as you saw at the beginning of the service, it's country fair time here at Grace Bible Church. We're going to have a huge carnival going on in the parking lot here in just a a couple weeks where we invite all of the neighborhood and our friends and and everybody to come, especially those with kids, um, to come and find out about Grace Bible Church and most importantly, to hear the gospel. Well, God is offering you an opportunity to do a good work this week. On your way out the door, we will hand you door hangers that you can put on people's doors to invite them to the country fair. I encourage you to grab, grab a couple of those and invite neighbors. College students, you probably live not too far from some family, maybe in an apartment complex with young kids. Go put that on their door. Invite them to come to Grace so that they can hear about Grace, about this incredible news that eternal life is an absolutely free gift. So invite your neighbors. If you want to do more than that, if you want to do even more good works, then I encourage you, as you, if you go through the four, you will see a table at the back of the four where you can sign up to volunteer and help us build that carnival. It takes a lot of work. So we'd love to have your help to pull off country fair. So this week, have confidence in your salvation, but get busy doing good works. That's James' point. I want to pray, and then we'll give us just a few minutes to rest before a Q&A. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this reminder that eternal life is ours as an absolutely free gift, that it's ours by faith alone, by grace alone, because of what Jesus did. What we do plays no role in eternal life. Thank you for that, God. Thank you that we can have security in our salvation, that that the book of James is not meant to undermine our confidence. Instead, it's meant to convict us now that we have this secure possession of eternal life to do good works. And I pray, Father, that we would. I pray that we wouldn't get so wrapped up in the theology and controversy of James 2 that we miss the simple, transparent point that as your people, you want us to do good on this planet. That's why we're here, to draw people to Jesus by loving and doing good. So I pray this week that each and every one of us would do good works, that we would obey you, that we would love others, that we would give and sacrifice so that we might make a difference on this planet. Please convict us and challenge us. In the name of your son, I pray. Amen. All right, I'm give you guys about 10 minutes. Anyone who wants to come for the Q&A, it'll be back in this room and we'll have snacks and water in here.